you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids club. We are in the middle of a six-week series looking at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6. The disciples had watched him pray. They had heard him pray, and then they asked him to teach them how to pray. And I suspect if many of us are honest, there are a lot of us in that same boat, right? We've seen others pray, we've heard others pray, but sometimes we're not sure what to pray. Or if prayer matters. Or if prayer accomplishes anything. And even if we feel pretty confident about prayer, it's pretty easy for all of us to fall into the rut of praying for the same things over and over and over and over again. So we're going to spend six weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer, looking at these six things that Jesus put before his disciples and said, pray like this. Pray about these things. Because in Matthew 6, Jesus not only tells them to pray like this, he then models it for them. So whether you're one of the least experienced prayers or a prayer veteran, a prayer warrior, there's something in this prayer for all of us. So we want to glean from the words of Jesus to seek a better and a more clear understanding of the things that he taught his disciples to pray about which can then become the kinds of things that we pray about. And when we understand it, we're going to be in a better position to practice it. And so, as a matter of focusing on it, I'm going to again ask you if you would say it with me, if you would join with me in the words, perhaps not the words you know by heart, because we all have different words, right? We come from different backgrounds. But if we go to the screen, we can all have the same ones. So if you'd join with me in saying this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So when Jesus says, pray like this, he starts out with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're going to start here every week because what it means to hallow his name is to set his name apart as holy. And when we do that, we're always reminded of the gospel, which is to say this. That we're always reminded that we could pray to the holy, righteous, and completely transcendent God, and we can literally enter into his presence, according to Hebrews 4, because of the work of the Son, Jesus. And that if you've believed in Jesus, according to John 1, then you are a child of God, and he is your Father. So when that happens, when you pray to God, the Father, You stand before him, not in the muck and the mire of your sin, but in the glorious, redemptive righteousness of Christ. Now hold on to that for a second. Because I want you to know that to be true. That when you pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, you do not show up in his presence in your muck and mire. You show up in his presence 
and the glorious redemptive righteousness of his son. That when you pray to God, he looks at you just like he'd look at Jesus. His own son, that's the righteousness he sees in you through the completed work of Christ. That's why we love Jesus, amen? Because you can show up. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what's happened. It doesn't matter what's gone on. God the Father welcomes you and is greatly pleased with you because he sees the completed work of Christ done on your behalf. Because when Jesus died on the cross, our sin, all of it, was completely imputed onto him. And his righteousness was completely imputed onto us. So we have full access to the holy God who is our Father because Jesus died on the cross. And when we pray, and when we hallow his name, we're reminded that on one hand he is a holy God, and on the other he's a personal loving Father. And when we hallow his name, we come to him in the full balance of both. That he's completely holy and righteous, and he's completely loving and personal. We're reminded that if we only see him as a righteous judge, that we'd be corrected to know that that's only half the picture. And that if you only see him as a loving father, that you would be corrected to know that that's only half the picture. So this first thing we do in pray, we pray through the gospel with a full knowledge of who he is and the knowledge of who we are and the reality that because of Jesus, we can come to the presence of the Father in his glorious redemptive righteousness. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the second thing given for us to pray about is your kingdom come. As we leaned into it last week, when we pray your kingdom come, we prioritize his kingdom in our lives. It sets as a moment to reset us to a kingdom priority. That regardless of where we've been, what we've been going through, what our day looks like, when we pray your kingdom come, we're reminded it's not about me, it's not about my kingdom, it's not about what I'm trying to accomplish, it's about God the Father, it's about his kingdom. I'm reminded of that, that his kingdom, as he described it, would come in me and would come through me. That I might, in the very words of Jesus, follow him and become a fisher of men. Or in the words of Paul, that I would be reconciled and then become a reconciler. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we realize that salvation isn't primarily about me, but that we are recipients of grace given to us so that we would pass on the message of grace. That the freedom and peace that we have found in Jesus Christ is exactly what we needed and for those around us struggling in sin or struggling in legalism or struggling in moralism or struggling in all kinds of chaos, that it's the exact answer that they need. And so we share it. When we pray your kingdom come, we're reset to kingdom values. 
And we're reminded to pray for our families, to pray for our neighbors, to pray for our coworkers, to pray for those who don't know Christ, and to pray for the world. To be reminded that there are people groups in the world with minimal exposure to the gospel. So if you were here last week, you might remember I informed you of the Joshua Project. They've got a page listing unreached people groups of the day. This morning, they would ask us to pray for the Rahawan people in Somalia. Have zero exposure to the gospel now in Somalia. And as we pray for the Rahawan later in the service, we'll be reminded of two things. One, that prayer matters. It absolutely matters because God hears his people, so we want to pray for people who don't know him, but it also ought to do something else for us. That if you begin to pray for the Warhawan people of Somalia, it might make you more aware of the Somalis around you. Because we happen to live in an area that's got a lot of Somalis, don't we? And so if we recognize that there are Somalis in Somalia who don't know Jesus, you happen to know that one of the largest unreached people groups in the United States live in Minnesota. There's Somalis living in Minneapolis. And they live here too, who need Jesus. When we pray his kingdom come, we put forth a kingdom priority. That people knowing Jesus is a priority, and so we lift them up, we pray for them. And that brings us to this third thing to pray about, this third priority of prayer in verse 10. Matthew 6.10 says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I have no idea how many times in my life I have said this. Group Catholic, we said it every week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, not my will, your will, your will be done. Will, uh, we'll lean into this later, a Greek word thelema in the text meaning your desire, your plan, your path under your leadership, that your will would be accomplished, not just as it is here, but as it is in heaven. That the authority that Jesus has in heaven would be carried out here. This is the third thing he gives for us, God's will. So what is God's will? And what does it look like for it to be accomplished? And how should we pray for it? That's actually going to be our outline for the morning and the rough outline we're going to use for the next several weeks. What is God's will? What does it look like for God's will to be accomplished? And what does it mean for me to pray that God's will is accomplished? So first, let's lean into this. What is God's will? It's actually an incredibly important conversation for believers to lean into. What is the will of God? First, we'll start here. I want you to know that there are only two places where the phrases the will of God or God's will show up in Scripture followed by an infinitive. Which is to say there are only two places where it says God's will that you fill in the blank. It's God's will that you fill in the blank. So those we ought to pay some special attention to because God made it abundantly clear in that case exactly what his will was for us. I'll give you the first one. 1 Peter 2.15, and this is what it says. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God says very clearly in his word, through the hand of Peter, that it's God's desire, it's his plan, that we would live in such a way that our lifestyle would be such a way that the people who live around us would be silenced because of how we live. That they would have to be quiet. That the talk of fools against you could not exist. That you would live a life above reproach. According to Peter in the Bible, God's holy word, this is God's will for you and for me. Overtly and clearly. Saying nothing about where you should live, who you should marry, where you should study, any of those things. This is God's will as laid out in Scripture. Second place. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And he clarifies it incredibly specifically, by the way. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathens who do not know God, and that in such a matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his holy spirit paul writes this to the thessalonians in a way that's frankly irrefutable right because he tags in verse eight that's why i left it in here we went all the way from three to eight because when he writes if you reject this you're not rejecting me you're not rejecting man's thought you're not rejecting my opinion it's god that you're rejecting Paul makes it clear that it is God's will for our lives that we would avoid sexual immorality. About a year ago, we preached on this, sexual immorality, the Greek word being porneia, which includes fornication, sex between people who are not married, adultery, non-marital sex involving someone who is married, homosexual acts, sexual acts involving people of the same gender, as well as issues of self-gratification. We could go on and on. This is God's will, that we would pursue sexual purity with our bodies, that we'd learn to control our bodies. This is God's will for you and for me, according to his word. If you want to talk about God's will, you got to start here. Why? Because God made it plain and clear. This is God's will for us. A quick poll. This is not a raise your hands poll. This is a like raise a neuron in your brain poll. How many of us are getting that right? Now, whether you're guilty of the first or the second, I suggest I'm suspecting all of us are guilty, correct? That's the gospel, friends. It's not the will of God that we would be perfect in everything. We won't be, right? God the Father sent his son because we couldn't follow the rules. Now, does that give us rampant permission to go astray in any and every area we want to pursue? 
Absolutely not. It's God's will for us that we would pursue holiness. It's God's desire for us that we should feel and pursue his holiness. So when you blow it and you go to pray, do you show up and say, God, I'm not doing your will and I stink and I'm awful and I'm just as bad as the heathens? No! Right? You hallowed his name, didn't you? You recognized who he was. You've prayed through the gospel that Jesus died on the cross, knowing you were a sinner, redeemed you completely, and you approached the Father in confidence. But this is God's will for us. His perfect and pleasing will. His will that we would find a greater happiness a greater satisfaction and, frankly, far less pain than when we pursue our own. We start with those two because it makes it plain, but the further you lean into God's Word, the further you will find God's will to be clear. I mentioned earlier that the Greek word for will in this context is thelema. Matthew uses it seven times in his gospel, including this prayer. So just to give us a sense, I want to look at a couple of the other examples that we could lean in further to understand God's will. Matthew seven twenty one. this is the second use. Jesus speaking says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For simplicity, I underlined and italicized will in the screen that's not in your Bible, but just so you know the difference between the will that is a thelema and the will that is not. One of them is a verb, the other one isn't. One of them is God's desire for your life. And what Jesus communicates in this verse, and in the broader context of the verse, because context is important, what he's saying is that calling out his name, or even claiming his name, doesn't actually testify to having a relationship with him. You'd find this to be true and consistent in the New Testament. Uh, you would find that in the end, there will be people who would say, Lord, Lord, I knew you. And Jesus says, we didn't know each other at all. That it's actually possible that you could claim the name of Jesus without knowing him at all. That's part of his point. And in this context, what Jesus declares is more meaningful and more valuable than just calling out his name. What's more meaningful and more valuable than just claiming his name is your obedience as a sign of your relationship with him. That if you choose to obey him, that is a testimony that he is your father. That it's a testimony that you are pursuing him. And that it testifies to something. James, the whole book, makes the same argument. Which is to say that our obedience to his words, that our obedience to his desires, that our obedience to his purpose testifies that we know him and is, in fact, his will will lean in further. Matthew 12 uses the same word again. Matthew 12, 50 says... For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And here Jesus articulates that the doing of his will, 
again, following his words, desires, purposes, declare that we are in his family. You see it again in Matthew 21 in the parable of the two sons, which we covered this summer. Matthew 21, 31. Which of the two did the will of the father, they said, the first? You remember the parable, you have two sons, one who says he's not going to go, and then he goes, and the other one says he's going to go, and then he doesn't go, and the question is, is, who does God's will? The one who says he'll do it and doesn't, or the one who says he won't do it and then does? And what Jesus makes clear here is that God was pleased, not in the answer of the one who says in a people-pleasing way, I'll be faithful, and chooses faithlessness, but rather God's will, his desire was for the one who said, I won't do it. And then changed his mind and chose a path of faithfulness that his obedience to him, our faithfulness to him matters. That while we obey his words and we obey his teachings and we obey his commands, And one of the things I want to lean into with us is that we obey his commands and not merely just his moral commands. I think this is where the church gets off track a bit. That we buy into this idea that his moral commands are more important. That we lean into this and we think, as long as I don't steal, as long as I don't covet, as long as I don't murder, as long as I don't lie, I'm fine. That God ultimately is calling me to be a moral person. And if that's true, I'd quickly point you to the Pharisees, a people to whom Jesus had no stronger words, people who just pursued a moralism to the extreme without embracing any of God's other commandments. Because if you study the New Testament, you would find God is not just interested in a moral people. Now, sure, our morality matters, right? It's obedience. But our morality matters in as much as it's a reflection of God's character as we carry out his missional commands. For his missional commands also matter. That we would go and make disciples. That we would prioritize his kingdom as aforementioned. That we would be fishers of men. That we would be ambassadors. See, this is God's will for us, that we would live in obedience, which is to say this, when you read your Bible, and church, please read your Bible, right? I get to say this to you from time to time, spend time in God's word. The average Christian doesn't. I want more for our church than that. When you read your Bible and you come along Come across an imperative, a command, an example. That we don't be a people that just read it and think that's nice. That's sweet. That's polite. It sure would be great if people did this. But rather, we would read it and we'd pursue it. For example, when you come across a passage like 1 Peter 1.15, which says... But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
So after you read this, and now I'm putting it before you, so now having put it before you, you're somewhat responsible for it by proxy, correct? Dick bailing me out. That when you come to a verse like this, that we would really and honestly stop and take a quick stock of our lives. Am I pursuing holiness? Is this answer simple? No. Is this answer easy? No. Is this something I probably don't even want to do? Probably, right? And yet, when God says, be holy, pursue holiness in all of your conduct, I might ought to take stock of my life and pursue it. Why? Because he asked me to. Because it's his will for my life. Which will bring us to the last use of Thelema in the book of Matthew, which actually parallels Jesus' prayer perfectly in its use of language. So it ought to be really high on our list of passages to look at. In Matthew 26, the Last Supper has ended. Jesus has gone into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before he heads to the cross. You might remember the story. He goes to pray, comes back and finds his disciples asleep. Goes to pray again, and this time his second prayer is recorded, though his first wasn't. And so you might realize that it's there purposefully. It's there intentionally and instructionally for us. Because this is what he prays the second time. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, wait for it, may your will be done. May your will be done. What Jesus does here is he replicates a modeled prayer that he had given them some 20 chapters earlier in Matthew. Before his disciples, he models this same concept here in an extraordinarily difficult and excruciating situation he models for his disciples the concept of putting the father's will over his own will especially when it's costly would this be simple for jesus will it be easy for jesus is it what jesus wanted at all the text no if it's not possible For this cup to be taken away. Seems to be that he's praying. If there's any other way we could work this out. And yet when you read the rest of the story. You find that as Jesus prays about the will of God in his life. In a challenging and an excruciating situation. That leads him to, to sweat blood. That he yields himself to God's will. In fact, he completely buys in to God's will. In fact, he utterly willfully goes to the cross and dies on our behalf. 
Now, Jesus has modeled these words for his disciples twice now. He says, pray like this, that your will would be done. And in case they didn't get it, in case they didn't see it, and by the way, according to Luke 11, he taught that another time. Then, before he goes to the cross, he models it again. May your will be done. And don't miss the example, right? Because as Jesus prays this in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross, remembering that of the 11 disciples who were faithful, 10 of them died, right? So as they went out and they spread out to take the gospel all over the known world, how many times do you think they thought, "Mm, my will, God's will, my will, God's will. You know, the beach is over there. If you looked at the map, they're pretty close to some beaches. It would have been a pretty easy move. And yet, overtly and overtly and overly, these men chose to put God the Father's will above their own. That they would sacrifice their own lives for others to hear the gospel. See, God's will for them wasn't merely about what I should study in college. Or whether or not I should eat a donut. Or whether or not I should live here or there, by this house or that one, God's will was about his kingdom. And it was about gospel obedience. So this is our tension. We have a tendency to always look at God's will from our perspective. God, do you want me to go to college? God, should I marry Pam? God, should we move to Fargo? And when we do that, when we see it only from our perspective, we often miss that his pronounced will in the scriptures is our obedience to him. It's it's not the specific will that I always ask for, but it's a general will towards obedience that I would pursue. That what God is doing is he's calling me to be faithful. Faithful to pursuing righteousness. Faithful to be pursuing holiness and faithful to be pursuing the people that he's putting in front of me. I had a college student in Memphis that I would laugh at from time to time. I have many. This individual kid would come to me from time to time and he'd say something like this. You know, Ben, I'm just struggling over whether or not I'm supposed to be sharing the gospel with my friend. You're you're struggling over whether or not you should be faithful to something God had asked you to be faithful about? Yes. So God has told you in his word to go do this, and you're basically saying, God, do you really mean it? Is this really for me? What we often miss is that God makes himself abundantly clear in many things, and yet we come to a lot of these things and we ask ourselves, God, are you really calling me to obey that? Yes, that was the answer. Yes, he really is calling us to obey. Yes, he really is calling us to put the kingdom above our own agendas. Yes, he really is calling us that in his divine providential will that we would step out trusting him, potentially looking like idiots, potentially costing us all kinds of things. But yes, he actually is calling us to that kind of faithfulness. What is God's will according to his word? That we 
would obey him. And what do we obey? His will. Everything he put before us in the New Testament. Are we going to get it right? No. Do we stop trying? No. We lean into the gospel and say, Jesus, I'm going to blow it, but I want to be faithful. Jesus, I'm not going to get this right, but I'm going to choose faithfulness. We pursue obedience, which brings us to our second point, which potentially will be the shortest point I make all year. What does it look like for God's will to be done? Obedience. Amen? Point three. So finally, what does it look like for me to pray that God's will is accomplished? Because this isn't just an applicational text. This is a prayer-driven text. When Jesus says, our Father in heaven, your kingdom done, your will be done, that we are legitimately called as believers in Jesus Christ, that if you want to follow Jesus, the model that's put before us is that we would pray, God, may your will be accomplished. And if his will is my obedience to his word, then it's accomplished by my obedience, then perhaps my prayer life ought to include components where I pray to him, acknowledging what he's calling me to do. And if this is fuzzy for you, that's perfectly okay. And if it's fuzzy for you, I'd encourage you to take on a daily Bible reading plan in the New Testament. And if that's like three verses a day, that's awesome. Start there. It could be like your five-minute Bible. I'm sure that app exists. And consider the examples. Consider the commands and obey them. And in the process, that we would be a people who would pray that our lives would be transformed. And that we would pray that we would be obedient. And that as we begin to pray that in all areas of our lives that God would make us more aware of his desires and make us more obedient to his desires, that as we come to those moments and say, "Mm, may your will be done, and we grunt our way through it, we can celebrate an answer to prayer that we were obedient, that we accomplished his will that as we work through this prayer that we would always be a people who acknowledge who he is and who we are that we pray through the gospel knowing none of us will get it right that we'd be a people who'd pray his kingdom come praying that we'd have a better understanding of our own salvation and praying that we might be a better participant in bringing the kingdom into our family the neighborhood our workplaces and the world And praying that his will would be done. That my life would come into complete obedience to Jesus Christ. Through everything he would call and ask me to do. Knowing fully that I will fail. Falling flat on my face over and over again. And pursuing it 
in the abundant grace afforded to me by Jesus Christ, through the power given to me by Jesus Christ, working through the Holy Spirit in me, that's our only hope, is it not? If you heard this and think you've got to will your way through it and white-knuckle your faith, you miss the point. We are called to obey Jesus. To ask him, God, what are you calling me to do? And give me the strength to do it. God is far more interested in his own reputation than we are. And he will accomplish his will. It gives us the grace to participate in it. Let me pray for us. Great Father in heaven, We come before you as a church able to pray to you because of Jesus Christ. That what he accomplished at the cross on our behalf frees us to come before you as God's redeemed people. Redeemed because we've all blown it in sin. And yet we claim the the redemption of Jesus Christ, that his blood has covered us so we can come into your presence and talk to you about anything. And Father, as a church, we just want to pray that your kingdom would come, that in each of our lives you'd bring us to a greater understanding of salvation and your gospel, and that you'd call each of us into the unique opportunities to participate in kingdom building. Father, that you'd put before us opportunities to testify to who you are, that we might clarify all that you've done through your grace in our lives that people wouldn't think that we're nailing it on our own. But we stand here as a people looking to your Son who's carried us through everything. And Father, we pray that your will would be done. That as people look at our lives, that we would live a life above reproach, not just as a model of morality, but a model of your power. That people would see reflections of you in our lives. Father, that you'd call us to greater obedience not just in your moral commands, but in your missional ones. Father, that we would love our neighbors so well and so sacrificially. And Father, in those moments when we don't want to give in, may we be reminded of Jesus who in the garden prayed, may your will be done. By the power of the Holy Spirit, And through Jesus, who accomplished our salvation on our behalf, may you call us to be increasingly faithful to all you've put before us. Father, we love you because of your Son. Father, we love you for what you've done and accomplished for us and on our behalf. God, we love you. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. Amen. Would the ushers come forward for this morning's offering? And let's pray.